The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I think today's passage reminds us that life and love are incredible gifts. Life is an incredible gift. To experience things, to enjoy things, to exist is an undeserved blessing. Love also is an incredible gift. To know someone, to be known by them, to be held, to be loved, to be cherished, to be forgiven. Incredible gift. Life and love are incredible gifts, but they're both very fragile gifts. Both of them could end quickly. Life could be lost in the snap of a finger, a moment's breath. The Bible actually talks about life being so fragile that it compares it to morning dew, a mist that vanishes. Love also can end before you know it, slipping away underneath your feet. There's good news, though. Though life and love are fragile and in a synchronous world can easily be lost, there's good news. God, through his son Jesus, has made a way to renew them, recreate them, and eternally restore them. Through Christ, life can be eternal, and death need not be feared. Love can be secured and never be lost or even threatened. So this morning, the title of the sermon is God's Gift of Life and Love. If you need a pew Bible, turn to page 72. You'll want to be in Exodus 20. We're going to today look at a couple passages in the surrounding chapters And here's what I'd like to do this morning uh, as we unpack these well-known commandments. We want to show how they protect the gift of life and then the gift of love. But with both of them, we're going to acknowledge how sin destroys them and yet the good news of how Jesus redeems them. So the first one, part one, God's sacred gift of life. And that's Exodus 20, verse 13. It was just read for us. Four words in English, only two words in Hebrew. You shall not murder. Let's take a few minutes to make sure we understand what the word means. There are eight different Hebrew words that describe the termination of life, but a very precise one is chosen here. It's the Hebrew word ratzak. And whenever this word is used, it's used not to describe the general ending of life, but the specific taking of legally innocent human life. The King James translation, which maybe is the one you grew up knowing, it says famously, thou shalt not kill which is not super helpful because it's far too imprecise of a word, at least in modern English. Even murder in modern English is a little bit broader or more confusing for what is being talked about here. So let me tell you some ways that the Bible uses the Hebrew word in this passage for not murder. We read that this word is used for intentional premeditated murder. Think of in the end of Judges where the woman with the Levite is graphically murdered. Or think of when King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and so with premeditation, he murdered him. The word is used there. It's also used, though, with what we might today call voluntary manslaughter, non-premeditated, yet still intentional murder. But it's used even more. It's used for involuntary manslaughter or reckless homicide. We read in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet 
It's just like a fence around your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That translation of that command may sound odd and strange and from a totally different era, but we put fences around our pools today because of this exact reason. Or Exodus 21. You have the Bible open. Will you flip just a page to Exodus 21? And let's look now in verse 28 through 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. So notice now it rises to the level of murder because there was negligence behind it. Today it'd be a little bit like driving impaired. Negligence that leads to the death of someone else is murder. The sixth commandment goes further. And I want you to see this because I think it's a very helpful passage for us now. You're in Exodus 21. Would you look up a few verses? Please look up to verse 22 of Exodus 21. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm for a child who is in the womb, then you shall pay life for life. Notice that God is equating the unborn child's life to the adult man's life. In fact, he does so in every part of the unborn child's body. Look how the verse continues in verse 24. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Every part of the unborn child is seen as a person who has life worthy of preserving. So the Bible presents abortion then as murder. There's a great danger of when we become culturally calloused about the taking of life and how that can pervade the way we view life in every other stage. This week, my wife and I were blessed to have a couple hours that we were able to go out. And when we went out, we went to the chocolate factory downtown. I confess the reason we went there is because I've read Curious George goes to the chocolate factory to my kids. That's what I was envisioning. So we got there and we went around the chocolate factory. It was not as big of a tour as I was picturing. But when we got done, we went to check out. And when we went to check out, we bought an incredibly overpriced (laughs) chocolate bar. But then on the counter, there was a sign that said, Abortion Fund. Now, my wife is holding our newborn in her hands. And so she asked, what does that sign mean? What does Abortion Fund mean? And the lady working there said, for just $5.00 you can help make sure a baby in North Carolina is aborted. Now, at that moment, I saw the countenance of my wife change, and I realized we need to expedite this process and move out of here. But the the thing that stuck with me is here we are. We're selling chocolate and callously contributing to the death of a human being happen hand in hand without any thought that there is any incongruity there. I want you to think about how if we diminish the sacredness of life Anywhere, we diminish it eventually everywhere. In, in 2001, Holland, the Netherlands, was the very first nation to legalize 
um, doctors to assist in suicide. What happened in the next few years is what they didn't account for. Insurance companies stopped helping the elderly because it's cheaper for their suicide to simply be legalized. Also, what they found is that no longer were requests coming from the elderly themselves, but from their family members to hasten the death of their parents. Actually, Dutch physicians during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in the 1940s refused orders from the Nazi troops to terminate the elderly or ill. And yet Malcolm Muggeridge notes, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. The reality is, if, if we don't treat life as sacred everywhere, at some point we'll lose the sacredness of it in all stages. So let me remind us from the Bible this morning, every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents are precious, even if they don't remember who they are. Nonverbal children are, are precious. Those in a wheelchair are precious. Those completely dependent on help are precious. Of course, there is a difference between terminating care and terminating life. But this morning, I want to remind us that life needs to be cherished. Perhaps you saw on the news that the seventh NC State student for this academic year passed away four days ago. And I was reminded of a funeral that I was involved in a number of years ago where a man had to speak at his daughter's funeral. She had committed suicide at 14 years old. When he came up to speak um, through an incredible amount of tears and emotion, he had only one plea to those present. He pleaded that they would live, that they would just cherish life. Don't you see that in the sixth commandment when God says, you shall not murder, he says that because God has made every life in his image and therefore of incalculable value. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And in verse 31, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. If we have at home a picture of someone we love, an image of someone we love, we put it in a frail frame, but we place it in a position of prominence because it reminds us of the reality that it points to. Perhaps when the house is sold or perhaps years later, someone else could take that same frame and not know the reality it points to and easily discard the image. And that's what we do as a culture if we forget where we're from and whose we are. Our lives are sacred because our lives show God. Now, actually, in the Bible, we do read never the Hebrew word ratzak used, but we read other words used to describe killing that is okay. Let me say at the outset, all the killing that is okay is okay because it helps preserve and protect legally innocent human life. Let me quote Peter Lightheart. He says, Scripture treats different sorts of killing differently. Scripture requires care for animals but never prohibits killing animals for food, with care, of course. The Lord authorizes civil rulers to execute 
justly condemn criminals, Romans 13 and Genesis 9. Scripture treats the death penalty as just, especially in cases of murder, Exodus 21-23, we just read, and Numbers 35. War is permissible in appropriate circumstances. Deuteronomy 20 gives us stipulations there. And Israelites were permitted to kill under restricted conditions to defend their homes. Now, right now, you could be thinking, Josh, okay, I kind of agree with you that we should protect life. But if we should protect life, then I don't see why it would ever be okay to kill. But remember, that's only to continue to protect life. But if you then think, well, but Josh, corruption will overtake People will corruptly carry out capital punishment. People will corruptly carry out wars. And people will corruptly defend themselves. And to that I'd say, well, of course, you're right. Unfortunately, people do all of those things sinfully. And yet, the Bible even had foresight about such corruption and gives wisdom to avoid it. You're in Exodus. Turn to chapter 22. I want to show you verses 2 and 3 as an example of how God, with wisdom and foresight, gives direction to avoid the corruption that would abuse the appropriate use of force. So look in Exodus 22, verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So you can defend what is yours. But notice how the verse continues. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. You see the wisdom and force thought of what God is saying? Self-defense can actually be criminal if it could have been avoided. You see? So all of the objections someone would have to, well, why is it okay? Well, there are stipulations so that it justly protects life. Genesis 9 gives the principle, verse 5, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Well, I grew up with a brother and a sister, and maybe you did too. And so if you did, perhaps you heard a sentence like this. As children were arguing with their parents, the parent would say, well, you're not listening to me in this area or in this area. And then my sister would say, well, mom, but I've never murdered anyone. (laughs) That that would be the way to equivocate from whatever the command was. And perhaps you're thinking something similar right now. Well, the sixth commandment, phew, that's at least one I know. I'm good on this one. But Jesus actually does get to a heart of murder before it's murder. And he touches all of us. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is teaching a very simple but important principle. Murder occurs before it's murder. It starts in the heart. And there we have to confess We are all guilty. Who hasn't been unrighteously angry this week? We showed in the way we speak to our spouse, the way we silently judge others who we don't think are performing the way they ought to, the way we could snap at our children for an innocent accident. Our ambition may actually be envy 
murder of the competition. We say that we're just telling it like it is, but actually we may be using our tongue to murder with insults and curses. We could say that we're just a good leader, but in fact, our rage could be feared by all those who work with us or for us. The angriest people might be shocked to hear that they're angry. But Jesus tells us the truth. Murder begins before it's murder, and our hearts may reveal a heart that is angry. Also, murder is not only something internally that makes us mad at other people, but murder is also the failure to love. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, If you are able to do good and you do not do it, it is sin. 1 John 3, when talking about Cain and Abel and Cain's murder against Abel, then talks about the church and says, When you see those who have need and you shut up your compassion on them, are you not guilty? Martin Luther was convicted by this, and here's what he wrote. This commandment is violated not only when we actually do evil, but also when we fail to do good to our neighbor. Though we have opportunity, if we fail to prevent, protect, and save them from bodily harm, if we send away a person naked when we could clothe them, we have let them freeze to death. If we see someone suffer hunger and do not feed them, we have let them starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned and you do not save them, though you have the means to do so, you have killed them. Luther concludes, It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld love from him and robbed him of the service by by which his life might have been saved. So here we are in the sixth commandment. And the bottom line is we're all guilty. We find that every one of us in this room, me first, has an angry heart at times, fails to love others as we ought, and so we are in a need position. This commandment has been destroyed by sin. In fact, think of life before this commandment was given. The very first humans born, Adam and Eve were not born, they were created. The very first humans born, Cain and Abel, Cain murdered his brother. That became so popular that in Genesis 4, we read about this person named Lamech who said that Cain got his vengeance on one, I'll get my vengeance on 70. In chapter 6 of Genesis, when God talks about the flood coming, he says this, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. Genesis 6 verse 11. Then we get to Jacob who's deceiving Esau in hatred. Joseph's brothers who plan to murder him, but then decide to monetize him. Pharaoh who murders baby boys. Moses who murders an Egyptian and then flees. And we are now up to chapter two of the second book of the Bible. This is before this law is even given. But let me tell you how there's hope for it. See, God is willing to in grace come to murderers and to offer redemption. But I want you to catch this this morning, you and I who, who do struggle with angry hearts, I want you to catch this. How we respond to God's grace determines the difference. Remember, God went to Cain. What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? God went to Pharaoh through Moses. What did Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? But God also went to Jacob and humbled him with a limp. Jacob surrendered. God went to Moses and told him to go back to the scene of the crime. And Moses did. 
See, something happens when we respond to the presence of God through humility. Death becomes life. My favorite example in the Bible is Saul. In Acts 8, we read that Saul was approving of Stephen's execution. And then we read that he was breathing out murderous threats, ravaging the church. And then in chapter 9, God, Jesus, resurrected, came to Saul. Have you ever thought someone was hopeless? (laughs) Let this True testimony, encourage you. Here's a man that's as hopeless as it gets. He's murdering Christians, and yet when he sees Jesus, Jesus strikes him blind. But then Paul is humbled. Here's what he writes years later. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. If you get to a point where you can say, Lord, I am a sinner, but will you save me? It changes your heart and the way you treat other people. What melts your heart actually is the love of God. Jesus is quoted in Galatians 2.20 by Paul when he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a change in Paul's life. He goes from persecuting the church to building the church. From killing Christians to being willing to die for Christians. From being a man known, feared as Saul from Tarsus to being a man loved, known as Paul from Jesus, an apostle. This is what's possible in anyone's heart when we realize that Jesus was crucified among criminals for criminals for us. This week, when you think about that person you're angry with, I pray James 1.20 will come to mind. Here's what the Bible says in James 1.20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That anger we have towards that other person will not produce anything profitable. But when we look to the cross and we remind ourselves of Romans 5.8, God loved me and while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It's hard to be angry at anyone else. When God has taken my place. So this morning, let Jesus change your heart in such a way that retaliation changes to sacrifice. Matthew 5, Jesus said, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone wants your tunic, give them your cloak as well. A willingness to suffer rather than retaliate because you know the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And our willingness to give grace, even to those who mistreat us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the sixth commandment is meant to protect life. But it only can really happen when we're humbled by love we don't deserve. And then the life of Christ flows through us. Now the seventh, part two, God's sacred gift of love. Look in verse 14, please, of Exodus 20. You shall not commit adultery. If I was to guess of the Ten Commandments, which one our country dislikes the most, I think it's the seventh. On January 30th, Sarah Kubrick was writing an article in USA Today, and the first sentence of her article says this, Monogamy is not for everyone. 
I read the entirety of her article. By the end of her article, she says, you should not be monogamously faithful unless it feels good to you in the moment. She completely counters the idea of covenant or promise. But this is common to our culture. Peter Lightheart writes, no commandment prickles us more than the seventh. Many live by a creed of sexual autonomy. My body is my own. And by sexual desires, whatever they are, are normal and healthy. How dare the Lord interfere with my constitutional right to do whatever I please? Can I have a little privacy, please? He concludes. Let's remember up front. The seventh commandment could be one that we could nod at and say, Oh, I know what this one means. Don't commit adultery. But all ten of the commandments, think of them this way. They're like the peak of the mountaintop and there are Dozens of paths underneath in which they could be broken. Therefore, the seventh commandment has to deal with actually quite a bit. In Leviticus chapter 18, Yahweh is willing to invade our privacy. And he is willing to tell us what is best for us when he says not to have sex with our mother or stepmother or daughter-in-law or sister or aunt. In that same passage, in verse 22, he says that a man should not lie with another man as he would with a woman. And he forbids sexual contact with animals in the following verse. Many of these things we would agree with. Some we wouldn't, but God is clear on them all. By Deuteronomy 24, God even considers something that we are so sophisticated and subtle that we may try to do as sinners, and that is to accomplish Adultery via divorce. So to have someone else that we want to have a relationship with and then say, well, I'll do it legally and I'll make sure that I get to be with that other person and they get to be with me after I've divorced so that I could be with them. Jesus tells us even more strikingly in Matthew 5 verse 27, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So when it's all said and done, the Bible presents an extremely narrow, irrigated path for sexual desire, and it's within covenant marriage. Matthew 19, in case you thought, well, that's Old Testament stuff in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes Genesis and says, have you not heard it said from the beginning, man and woman become one? Well, here's the objection in our culture. A common objection would be, well, who cares who I have sex with? Isn't that my own business? And let me take just a moment on that. One common objection we hear in our culture is, well, what I do in private won't harm anybody else. It's nobody else's business. But actually, in the Bible, uh, many sexual acts are criminalized. And some, of course, in our culture are as well. When we get to 1 Corinthians 5, we read that a man who's committing adultery with his stepmother, his father's wife, that that matter needs to be brought to the entire church. Why? Why? Can't he do in private whatever he wants? It won't harm anybody else. Actually, it will. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We're all so interconnected that no one ever does anything in private without it affecting other people. All right, let me take another common Objection. In our culture, we've now decided that consent is all that matters. So as long as we have consent, nothing else matters. Let me give a few thoughts on that. First, did you know that even consent can still leave someone heartbroken? 
So a culture of consent actually won't avoid all potential harm. Helen Lewis was writing in the Atlantic last year. Her article is called The Problem with Being Cool About Sex. And here's what she concluded. Our enlightened values... Less stigma for unwed mothers, acceptance of homosexuality, greater economic freedom for women, availability of contraception, embrace of consent culture has not translated into anything like the paradise of guilt-free fun we were promised. I think it's helpful to remember that actually if we make consent the only standard, it will dull us to abuse and desensitize us to violence. This year, an Oxford professor was trying to teach his class that pornography abuses and objectifies women and debases their value. But the the kids in the classroom disagreed with him and said, but they're consenting. Because the only standard they had for good or evil was consent. It's important to know that consent doesn't mean that what you want is what you should want. Christine Emba was writing for the Washington Post. Her article title says, Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. In her article, she points out that the outcome of the sexual revolution, which was to free sex from the bonds of marriage, has actually created a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. In her article, she writes, Even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other, and our deepest selves. Despite the many popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Christina Emba is noting that in our culture now, We are both liberated and miserable, but God is protecting sex so that we will be free and joyful within the bonds that he made it in. I fear actually that even among Christians, we don't understand what an incredible gift love is and sexual love is inside the bonds of marriage. Let me give you some examples, unfortunately, of church history that show that maybe we don't know this very well. Tertullian one of our earliest church fathers, regarded the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. Ambrose said that married couples ought to be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine admitted that intercourse might be necessary, but taught that sexual passion was always a sin. Most priests in his era counseled people to abstain from sex altogether. In fact, you may know church history well enough to know that the Catholic Church declared that sex was sinful among married people on holy days. And by the time Martin Luther was born, there were 183 of those a year that married couples were forbidden to have sex with one another. Thank God for the Reformation, (laughs) where people got back to the Bible. We read from Leland Reichen, the Puritan, this is hilarious, we think of Puritans as prudes, but actually we just don't know history at all. The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed in the cultural history of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companionate marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded romantic love and exalted the role of husband and wife. Puritans are helpful, but let me just tell the Bible to you, okay? Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let the marriage be held in honor of all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
Only the immoral and adulterous God will judge, the verse continues. Proverbs 5 is my favorite. It gives the metaphor of water and talks about how water, if it's in the street in a puddle, is not very refreshing. But if water is in a well that is your well and you can return to it, its depths are refreshing and more joyful over your lifetime. It ends Proverbs 5, verse 18. Let your fountain, your well, be blessed Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible's not shy at all to say this is a great thing for a husband and wife to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. See, God actually made sex as a superglue that bonds you to the other partner, which is why when it's in the covenant of marriage, it tightens the seal that's already been given. But when it's removed from it, it breaks our ability to have trust and transparency with another person. C.S. Lewis was all over this when he wrote, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are regarded as a single organism. The two become one flesh. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage from all other kinds of union is that it strips aside this one thing from everything else. He concludes, the Christian attitude does not mean there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than there's anything wrong about the pleasure of eating. But it means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you try to get the pleasure of taste without also swallowing and digesting. To chew things and spit them out separates the things that God has joined together. 1 John 4 is so helpful to us because it shows us that love, loyal love, romantic love, is actually something that comes from God. Now, I know there's a kind of love that Nicholas Sparks writes about and Hallmark tries to give counterfeit versions of. But there's actually a different kind of love that doesn't come from anyone but God alone. 1 John 4, verse 7, let us love one another for love, that kind of love, is from God. Whoever loves in that kind of love has been born and knows God. Anyone who does not love in that kind of way does not know God because God is that kind of love. What kind of love is God? Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest. God sent his only son so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Did you see two things about God's love that's different from the Hallmark movies we have? He's loving the unlovely and doing so sacrificially. So verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We don't hear ought very often in the way we talk about love. We hear, how does it make me feel? But in the Bible, actually, ought shapes our feels. This last year, I read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and he had this one line that was so great that I thought, I don't care if I get a late fee. I'm keeping this book, and I'm going to write this down by hand. I love how he put it. Here's what he wrote. Love is not blind. That is the last thing it is. Love is bound, and the more it is bound, the less it is blind. That's exactly right, exactly. See, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not insist on its own way. Love only works 
within the parameters of promise. When you give with ought, then you feel with joy. Well, sin has destroyed life, and sin has destroyed love. Love is a gift, a fragile gift, but one easily destroyed. Well, what hope is there? The hope is the same. The hope is the work of Jesus in our heart flowing from it. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, no idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And if that's all I had to say, there would be no hope. But verse 11 says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Washed by what? Washed in the blood of Jesus. Washed by the one who took our sin in his body and paid the consequences and gives us justification, sanctification, and joy by the Spirit of God. See, Jesus did what we all need. He took the debt that we have as those who have broken life and who have broken love, and he paid for it. But more than that, he then enables us to experience it. My favorite example in the Bible of this is King David. David committed adultery. He saw a woman who he thought was pretty, saw Bathsheba, decided to coordinate events so that he could steal her and take her for himself. For years, for time at least, he lived in callous conscience over his sin, and actually it made him miserable. But then he had a friend, Nathan. Nathan the prophet came to him, told him a story about someone who stole one sheep from this person who only had one, even though that person owned an innumerable amount. What should happen to a person like that? David said, he ought to be killed. Nathan said, I'm talking about you. But David didn't respond like Cain and didn't respond like Pharaoh. He humbled himself before the Lord. And he did the only thing any of us can ever do when we sin. He said, have mercy on me. O God, Psalm 51, verse 1, according to your steadfast love, blot out my transgressions, restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach others of what you have done. You see, in Christ we have forgiveness, in Christ we have cleansing, but then our life isn't over, it has ongoing purpose. In fact, when we're united to Jesus, rather than taking We learn how to give. Let me give you three things that I think actually become true in the way you approach sexual love, romantic love, when Jesus is melting your heart. They're both, they all three start with S. The first is you have satisfaction. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to those who are single and to those who are married. And he says, because you have the Lord Jesus, you can have satisfaction in the stage you're in. You don't have to take what isn't yours yet. Number two, you can have security. One of the ways sex can be abused or even romantic love can be abused is to manipulate or coerce another person. But when we know that Christ gave himself for us, why would we use that to manipulate someone else? All that I need, God will provide for me through his son. And the third S that it enables is service. In our culture, sex is a consumer good. We take it. We use someone for it. But in Christ, in 1 Corinthians 7, we learn that sex is now about serving our spouse, satisfying their desires over our own. 
seeking their pleasure. Only Jesus can give us such a heart. But over time, he will work it out so that what was fragile, life and love, and corrupted, now he recreates and renews. And where sin once abounded in Christ, now grace abounds all the more. Let's ask him to do that now as I close in prayer. God, you know my heart. You know our hearts. You know where we've been angry, where we've been lustful. You know, Lord, where we've taken such a good gift and we've corrupted it. So, Lord, thank you so much that we know that Jesus Christ is our only hope for our conscience to be cleared, our sin to be washed, for us to be cleaned as white as snow. But not only will Jesus clean us and wash us, but then there will be rivers of life and love that flow out of us that are supernatural. It is natural for us to take. It is supernatural to give. It is natural for us to demand, but it is supernatural for us to delight in the pleasure of someone else. Remind us, Lord, what you told us in Proverbs, that to try to find these things in puddles in the street is not possible. But to find them in a secured well where we can return and find greater grace for each request is wonderful. So, Lord, help us to taste and see that the Lord is good in life and in love. And I pray that in all these things, your name will be exalted and glorified. Thank you that we see through David, no sinner is beyond forgiven. And we see through Saul, no lost person is beyond your reach. So may no one today cower like Cain or push back like Pharaoh. But may we instead just humbly say, I am the worst sinner, and yet Jesus is a greater Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.